0: How often are you in the air?
1: Uh, quite a bit, a couple times a week now. I mean, I flew
0: for a Rob living. Mark is a pilot. You know, used to work for the FAA.
1: I fly little ones and big ones and things in between and everybody tells me that I'm never shy with an opinion, so <laughs> as you can probably tell.
0: But there's one thing Rob doesn't love talking about. All the times things have gone wrong while he's been in the cockpit.
1: You know, I mean, I've had a few things happen. I don't think any pilot Can get through a career without having something go on where they think, hmm, this wasn't what it was supposed to do.
0: There was that time he had a fuel pump fail on him outside of an airstrip in Illinois. Another time he was flying some folks around and heard the engine start to slow down. Then the nose began to dip.
1: I could feel the engine start to slow down. I mean, I don't know how much altitude we lost, not very much. But again, when it's happening, you almost don't even have time to to think about it. It's only after it's done that you think, and you're breathing and you're going, oh boy, what was that? Pilots don't like to talk about that. But, you know, that's where our training comes in. Rob's been
0: thinking a lot about who's to blame when things go wrong in flight. When Boeing 737 MAX was grounded earlier this month, after two oddly similar crashes, it initiated a massive investigation into the manufacturer, the Federal Aviation Administration. But Rob worries it's not
1: going to tell the whole story. You talk to any of these guys that are flying the airplane, their egos are never going to let them admit that, yeah, you know, I had a few... Uh, I had a few concerns about this, uh, whole. oh, nah, we can handle it. We know what it's gonna look like. Trust me, we, that wouldn't happen to us.
0: Just this week, as the Senate held hearings into how Boeing's plane was found airworthy in the first place, the company revealed they think they've figured out what went wrong. They laid out a simple software upgrade that they say could prevent future crashes. We're working with pilots and industry officials And we'll be spending time with them today to explain the updates that we're making to the 737
1: max to get their input and to earn their their trust i mean boeing has a a strong following among the pilot group there's an old phrase you know if it's not boeing we're not going uh and to say that well we we screwed up I, i think it's going to take some time to win us back, uh, and and again, it, it's not going to happen overnight.
0: Would you fly a seven thirty seven Max right now?
1: Oh, uh, not at the moment. No, I I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Boeing saying, okay, we've got the fix. Okay, well, but still, I want to know absolutely that everybody believes they have they are solving the correct problem, because we we don't at least to me we don't know that as of yet.
0: Today on the show, Rob is going to give us the pilot's view on the 737 MAX disaster. He's watched for decades as the airline industry changed. He says finding out what could have prevented these crashes is going to be more complicated than people think. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. So I want to start with Boeing. Boeing developed this plane, and they're, they're huge, right?
1: Absolutely. They're, they're the uh, 500-pound gorilla, Airbus and Boeing. They're the two that compete neck and neck for pretty much all of the commercial aircraft uh, deliveries.
0: And why did they want to make the 737 MAX?
1: Well, they, they wanted an airplane to compete with Airbus's A320neo. And Airbus beat Boeing to the market with a airplane that that could beat the older 737, new generation, they called it. And so Boeing was struggling, saying, wow, we've got to do something quick because we're going to lose market share. And they started uh, talking to customers, saying, well, what if we had an airplane that could do this, 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 and that? And customers, Southwest American, other customers in other countries said, yeah, we'd take a look at that. And so then Boeing went to work and kind of created this new airplane that looks very much like the 737 of old.
0: Well, it is the 737, right? Like, didn't they just upgrade this older plane?
1: Oh, absolutely. It is. It's just, it's had a tweak here. It's been made a little longer. It's been made a little heavier. It had different radios, new seats, new uh, interiors. uh, and, And for the MAX, they said, well, we can make this... New airplane more efficient than Airbus's A320 Neo. And people said, hmm, okay. We've been Boeing customers for years. We like Boeings. If you can make that work, we'll we'll take a look at it.
0: And it sounds like this win-win because it's it's cheaper for them to make because they're basing it on, you know, a design that's been around for 50 years and it's cheaper for the airlines to fly because it needs less fuel. So on paper, this sounds like a great idea.
1: Oh, sure. And one other very important point is that it carried what we call a common type rating. Uh, so that in order for me to act as captain on, on an airplane, I have to go through school and I have to take a check ride with a, uh, an FAA employee that says, okay, I certify that you are okay, you're safe to operate as captain. And what they wanted to do, I mean, the training is very long. It's It's weeks and weeks and weeks. So what they wanted to do was to make uh, a three that would have a common type rating so that the airlines wouldn't have to spend a great deal of money uh, retraining their pilots. They could say it's just like the last one you flew, a couple of tweaks here and there, but otherwise it's the same airplane.
0: But shoving this bigger engine, this more fuel efficient engine into the 737 had these consequences, right?
1: It's just plain old science that when you take an engine that is more powerful the airplane's going to react differently but what they also found was that the physical size of the engine was much bigger than the one it was replacing and it, if they if they just hung them on the old airplane the airplane uh, wouldn't operate correctly because the engines were so low to the ground that they would they would scrape the ground
0: Boeing had been talking about building a totally new plane to replace the 737. But that would have taken more time. And Boeing didn't have it. They didn't have time for training pilots either.
1: What Boeing did do is they came up with a PowerPoint program that you could run on an iPad or a laptop that served as what we call differences training. That when two airplanes are so similar that almost none of the guts of the avionics, the controls, whatever change, we can just look at something and say, okay, the difference between that one and this one is this one's a little heavier when you're flying it. This speed needs to be bumped up two or three or four knots, and it'll climb this way. And you don't necessarily need to go fly a simulator because it's going to fly just like the old one. But there are a few differences you need to know about. And they did that with the, the max. But they never once mentioned this uh, augmentation system, the MCAS, to anybody because they thought it was so invisible to the operation that pilots wouldn't even know it was there. The chances of it going off were—I won't quote a figure—but minimal. And they thought they—they they don't even need to know about this, so we won't even—we won't even take up their brain power with it.
0: And I just want to explain what the MCAS is and you can disagree with me if I get it wrong, because there's a chance I might. My understanding is that there's a sensor on the nose of the plane that tells you if it's pointing the wrong way, like pointing up when it's supposed to be pointing down. And that sensor can trigger another system that can prevent the plane from stalling. If it's having trouble balancing the weight of the engine as it lifts off.
1: Is that correct? Uh, pretty much. I think you have a pretty good handle on it. And so that people know when we say stall, we don't mean the engines are stalling. We mean that the wing is going to stall. And we, the word we use, stall, means that the wing is going to stop producing lift. And it, when the wing stops producing lift, the wing falls, and it takes the airplane with it. So you've got to get the airplane flying again. And so the normal method to get the airplane flying again when an airplane stalls is to push the nose over. But what happened here is that there was nothing wrong with the airplane. It was flying along just fine. And the flight control computer was getting bogus information from one of these sensors, and the uh, MCAS says, oh, you need me. Hey, I'm going to jump into action here and push the nose of the airplane over. Hmm. And the pilots were not ready for that.
0: And would you say the M- the MCAS is like the major the major change in this plane?
1: It's the most notable change, most notable change on the 737 Max because no one knew it was there. I mean, I called a number of guys and I said, "What the hell is this thing?" And they went, "I don't know. I never heard of it." And and to say that you know, you found out something about an airplane after you flew it, that's not that uncommon when someone else flies it and says, oh, did you know it'll do this? And you go, oh, wow, that's kind of cool, I didn't know that. But as far as something that could wrestle the control wheel out of the hand of the pilot flying and push the nose over on its own, and we're not even going to tell you it exists, that is earth shattering to us.
0: Well, and there's this other thing, which is there was a warning sensor that Boeing offered But you had to pay extra for it. So there's this reporting that apparently Boeing told American Airlines pilots, you know, you're not going to have the problem that the Lion Air jet did because you have these warning sensors because you paid for the upgrade.
1: Paying for the upgrade. I'm I'm sorry. I have to agree with what some of the people said on the Hill yesterday that, you know, making certain safety equipment optional just seems really stupid to me. It's like anti-lock brakes these days. Almost every car runs with anti-lock brakes. And if you asked somebody who's ever been through a skid, would you like anti-lock or should we make that an option? They'd say, no, 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 put that in there. We like that. Should, aircraft- all, should all of these safety features been mandatory that could have alerted pilots and mechanics to issues with the sensors? Should they have been mandatory? Yes or no?
0: Senator, safety-critical pieces of equipment
1: on an aircraft are mandatory: That's
0: This week, those optional safety features got called out in a hearing on Capitol Hill.
1: Yes safety no. Should they should they have been mandatory? Yes or no.
0: Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut talked about reading incident reports from pilots who'd had close calls with the 737 Max, struggling to regain control the same way the pilots in Indonesia and Ethiopia did.
1: I read some of the pilot reports. They're public. NASA has them. They provided them to me. They are chilling. If I'd been a passenger on one of those planes and I knew about these incidents, I would have wanted a parachute.
0: I asked Rob, after watching this hearing, who did he hold responsible?
1: It's hard to say I would blame any one particular person. I think uh, when we have an accident, We often talk about a a chain of events happening, that uh, this one thing on its own wouldn't have caused an accident or even these two things happening at the same time. But by the time you get to the third or the fourth incident or situation, it was just it was just too overwhelming for the human to cope with. I don't believe for a minute that Boeing was trying to make an airplane that was deliberately confusing or unsafe or anything like that, nor do I believe the FAA was intent on creating a product that would kill people uh, years later.
0: I mean, no one looks good here.
1: <laughs> but, no, no, you're right. And nobody does. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've said that this incident kind of diminishes the FAA in the eyes of the world. Why this particular incident?
1: I think the FAA had, you know, I'm I'm an old guy, so I was around when FAA was always known as the leader. Every time somebody did something around the world related aviation or air traffic control or anything, they would bring people to the United States to look at how FAA did it because they knew these were the people they wanted to model. And and that's changed uh, over the years. Uh, and I think for me, the, the, final, the final shake of the head, perhaps, was when the Ethiopians had to decide— where to send the uh, the cockpit and the flight data recorders from this aircraft that crashed uh, recently to be analyzed because they didn't have the technical expertise and normally it would go to the National Transportation Safety Board in Washington because we're the gold standard this time they sent it to Europe that was a that was a clear signal that uh, the Ethiopians and people in that region had didn't have the faith in the FAA anymore because they thought Boeing, FAA, those guys are so close together. We don't know that we're going to get an honest read on, on what the data says in that recorder and we're not going to run the risk.
0: Hmm. You know, you're a pilot and I want to talk about the pilots themselves because in the original Lion Air crash in Indonesia, the plane actually had trouble before the flight that took it down and three people were able to go into the cockpit and realize what was happening and they solved the problem. And it implies that potentially with the flight in Indonesia, with the Ethiopian airlines flight, these flights could have been saved. And to me (laughs) as a passenger, it's scary. Like how much relies on who's in that cockpit and what they know and maybe what they don't.
1: I think it's a very good point that you made there and uh, for people that may not be familiar before the uh, before the Lion Air uh, accident uh, one of the crews cuz what they do is they use the airplane over and over and over again during the day but they switch out the pilots for rest periods and things like that. And an earlier crew had had a, the same problem with this airplane that the uh, crew that lost control of it had and uh, they they had it repaired they flew it again it had the same problem but the captain on board that airplane knew enough to say this looks like a a, a fault that i have been trained for i'm not sure what's going on and he went over and turned off a couple of uh, electrical master switches that are e- easily accessible in the cockpit that would not allow the motors to run to push the nose of the airplane over. And he said, Whoa, look at that. It's flying just fine. He said, you leave those switches alone. And then they, they landed safely. And the next crew took the airplane again after maintenance looked at it and said, we don't see anything wrong with it. And they did not seem to have the, either the experience or the knowledge to say, ah, I know what this is. And we'll turn off those same electrical switches.
0: It's, I mean, it sounds to me, honestly, like if you're flying one of these big planes, you are kind of putting yourself in Boeing and the FAA's hands in a different way than you might if you were on a littler plane where you have more manual control. But I don't know if that's actually true. That's my
1: feeling looking at Well, it. you know, it's a funny thing that you say that because I was talking to a, a Max captain the other day for, well, one of the airlines. And I said, just just so I, because I'm a flight instructor too, and I talked lots of people how to fly. And when we would have a problem with electronics, I would always say, just, you could just turn it off, just turn it off, fly the airplane by hand and, and you're fine. And so that, that's what I wanted to get to with the seven three. And I said, look, if whatever's going on at very worst, if I just turned all the electrics off in the cockpit, all the avionics, I could still fly the airplane. He went, absolutely. I said, okay, that's all I needed to know so that there is this reversion that would allow you to just take control of the airplane. But what we found with many new pilots, because they're trained in these complex cockpits, is that they get so involved in trying to fix the problem of what is the airplane doing and how do we get the airplane to stop doing this, that they forget to fly the airplane.
0: That's alarming.
1: Yeah, it is. Well, lo- it's called loss of control. And loss of control in flight is the biggest killer in aviation now worldwide.
0: As a pilot, what would it take for you to trust the FAA or Boeing again?
1: (laughs) Well, I I trust the FAA. That's a different story. I I used to work for the agency. I worked for the agency for 10 years. So I have a different, uh, I, I might have a different axe to grind about the agency itself. But to fly this airplane specifically, I am going to need to see what the fix is, but again, I need to know for certain that the accident investigators on both of these accidents, as well as our own National Transportation Safety Board, I, and I trust the NTSB. The FAA, not so much. But the NTSB here is, is still the gold standard to me. And uh, when these people all say, we've got it, we, we know we've got it, we've flown it in simulators, pilots have been trained so that they know what this may look like and how to uh, how to recover from it, then I'll be happy. But if they just simply say, okay, the software fix is in, it looks good, uh, and you guys all know about the MCAS, right? It could do blah, 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 okay, great, okay. So it's the same thing, let's just go. I don't think it's gonna work that way this time.
0: Rob, thank you so much for talking to me about this.
1: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Rob Mark is a commercial pilot and publisher of Jetwine.com. That's J-E-T-W-H-I-N-E.com. You can find him on Twitter at Jetwine. All right. That's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Have a great weekend. I'm going to catch you back here Monday.